And this woman came up to me and literally, with outstretched hands, said to me, please, please, Linda, take my baby. I can no longer feed her and I don't want her to die. And I looked straight back into her eyes, knowing that this was right, although it sounded awful. And I said, no, I will not feed your baby. And I didn't take the baby. And I left her there standing with her arms outstretched with the baby in it. And I said, no, but I promise you, I will enable you to feed your own baby. Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds and lives of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. My next guest has been described as a cross between Florence Nightingale and Indiana Jones, with the ability to make the impossible possible. Now, that would be high praise indeed from anybody, but makes even more of an impact when you find out that that praise came from Sir Richard Branson. Her name is Linda Cruz, and she has spent the last 20 years on the front line of some of the world's biggest disasters, doing everything that she can to help. But it's her particular brand of help that made me so determined to get her on this show. Like many of us, most of us, I would hope, I have been pretty frustrated that the world isn't fixed yet. I don't know what fixed looks like, but I'm fairly sure we're not there. I'm frustrated that despite countless telethons, children are still starving. I'm frustrated that despite brilliant ad campaigns, Victims of war are still left hopeless and homeless, and my heart breaks often at the realization that despite charitable giving having increased exponentially year on year, over half the world's population still lives in poverty. Now, it's easy to assume that the most valuable currency when looking to solve these problems, and I know I have made this assumption, would be money. We just, if more people had more money, then surely we could, we could fix a lot of the challenges that we're facing. But Linda has worked tirelessly in areas like Thailand, Uzbekistan, and Syria, proving the opposite, that the greatest tool we actually have at our disposal to create an impact isn't what's in our wallets, but what's in our minds, what's in our heads. In order to prove this, and she has done time and time again, she has taken some of the world's most innovative leaders in the corporate space not only in the corporate space, just recently I was talking to her, she took some NASA astronauts to the front line, literally bringing people to where some of the world's greatest issues are taking place and asking them to direct their collective brain power to find the solutions. By doing that, by taking some of the smartest minds we have to the ground, to ground zero, she has generated more of an impact than most not-for-profits have ever dreamed of. Now, I most of the interviews with this podcast come about by chance or accident or recommendation. I don't know this many amazing people myself. And this one is no different. A friend of mine in publishing called me and said, there's this lady, she's on tonight. Pack up your bag, get in a cab, you have to go and see her. She's only in town for a short period of time from London. And so I did exactly that, packed myself off to the city and I found myself in a room called Lectern Rock. 
which was as zany as an interesting as it sounds like it might be. It was speakers and rock music and in all of it, in the corner of the room, I could see this lady standing there and she just had a suitcase next to her. And I would later find out that that was Linda Cruz and I would also find out that that suitcase, she had been living out of it for 18 years. 18 years ago, she had sold everything that she owned after her children left home and she had taken herself to all the front lines, all the war zones she could find in order to figure out how she could make a difference. And what was amazing to me about this is that it wasn't a story of hope. You know, we hope that it gets better. I hope that you can help. This was a story of groundbreaking ideas. This was a story of giving hands up rather than handouts. This was a story of the momentum that she had achieved and above all, bottom line, This was a story about world-changing influence that we all have. So the next morning, she rocked up here to the office and without many notes, because I I didn't have time to write many notes, and I was way too into the story to, to make myself do so, we sat down and we just talked. And I am still buzzing from this conversation many weeks later. We talked about making that first step when the problem is so overwhelming What's the one thing you can do right now to chip away at it? When you see those videos, when you read that article, when you turn on the news and you don't know what to do, what's one thing you can do? We talked about contribution, why your mind and your attention are so much more valuable than your money. We talked about lifting people's capability, how to give people back a sense of control, a sense of pride and a sense of feeling capable to be able to reinvent their own communities. We also talked about the gamification of giving, which was a new one on me and I actually think is one of the most groundbreaking ideas I have heard in the charitable, not-for-profit, impact, social enterprise sector for many, many years. The gamification of giving is a tool that you can use right now in your teams and your families to work on the toughest problems the world is facing. You can literally do it when you get home tonight. Linda flipped the paradigm surrounding charity on its head. And if you get one thing from this episode, let it be that the impossible can be made possible, not by money, but by actually standing up and contributing our experience and our ideas, the things that we already have. After this interview, if you want to know more about Linda's jaw-dropping life, and it is a, it is a jaw-dropping life, you can read her upcoming book, Leading from the Frontline, Lessons Learned from the World's Most Dangerous and Volatile Areas, which is coming out on the 1st of October We will no doubt be promoting it across all of our channels when it does so. But before you do that, I hope you sit back and you enjoy and you are inspired and blown away as I was by my conversation with Linda Cruz. Linda Cruz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Linda was just telling me about the fact that she's been in some scary situations in her life, but the scariest one was actually trying to cross the road in front of our recording studio. (laughs) It's very sad, but very true. (laughs) You you cannot leave this world like that. (laughs) All right. I'm going to kick off the interview in a way that I always kick off interviews, which is in asking you whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And I think especially in your world, global change, a lot of people would assume that you'd have to have a big voice and a big personality to take on something like that. Yes, I mean, it's true. And I think I have become what people would see as an extrovert because it's really my job, my role to be slightly larger than life, 
to be able to inspire, encourage, lead. But it's definitely coming from a place of being an introvert because I'm a very quiet person deep down. I think a lot about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, where I'm going. But there is no doubt that once I'm in situations that require me to be an extrovert, I am. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just going to stay there for a second. How do you find that? So for anyone listening that goes, well, I'm an introvert, that well that you're talking about that you Mm. dig into, where do you... Where do you find that? I think it's really easy for me because I work in this whole field of social change because the last person I actually think about is myself. So if I have any sense of fear or reticence that I can't deliver this leadership that I need to, I have a very strong belief that it's not about me. And if I don't act up, step up, share, be the voice, then the action won't happen. So, and the people I want to help will not be helped. So that's how I find it. I actually put myself to one side and I think about the service and the contribution I'm doing. And then it's easy. You're just reminding me of a conversation I had with a lady called Nancy Duarte. She literally built, you know, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth? Oh, yes. She created that. She's a professional Mm. storyteller, presentation designer. And she was saying exactly the same thing. She was saying in all her research and all the most powerful speeches, most powerful leaders, and she's done a lot of data on it. The one thing she found to be true was that the best way to do it, the only way to do it is when you you consider yourself, you are not the hero. No. You are not the hero of the story. The audience, people you're trying to reach are the hero of the story. And she said it beautifully, you are not Luke Skywalker. (laughs) You are Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's just start. I want to go back in time Mm -hmm. to 2004, Mm -hmm. which was the Thailand tsunami, Mm -hmm. which many of us saw unfold or at least unfold later on our television screens. Mm. Where were you when you first saw that Mm. and what happened afterwards? I was working in Uzbekistan in Tashkent and I, like many others, saw this terrible disaster unfold. And I remember it to this day just seeing, you know, these 100-foot waves, 230,000 dead, 50 countries affected, and these just awful scenes. And I just had this, it was like a magnetic pull. I just knew I had to go. I remember distinctly rushing to meet one of my friends who I'd become very fond of and saying, I'm just off to buy a one-way ticket to Thailand, Phuket. And he said, why? Everyone's running out. Why are you running in? And I'm like, I know I have to go. I know I need to be of service there. So it was one of those extraordinary times when something greater than yourself compels you to do something which logically is not there. I have learned over the years, though, not to tell too many people what I'm about to do <laughs> because people just could just, you know, A, just say you're mad, stop it, or actually really try and persuade you to stop. And so when I have that real compulsion to do something, I just go. So you went. I did. You got on a plane. Mm. You got off the plane again and you got in a car and then you had a, a pretty fundamental experience when you were in the car on the way to pretty much ground zero. Yeah, it no doubt the Asian tsunami is the worst disaster I've ever been to on the ground. And the sights were awful, overwhelming. I mean, there were literally cars thrown on tops of houses. I mean, these huge resorts just crumpled like matchboxes. 
and these heavy navy boats that weighed tons were thrown miles inland. And just the devastation, the glass, trees down, it was so bad, I, I had to ask the driver to stop because I didn't know if I could actually continue further. And I was heading towards the largest survivors camp, which was 5,000 Thai people who had lived along the coast by Bandam Kem had been put into this survivors camp, and that was my destination. But the scenes were so bad, I just, I had to stop. And, you know, I just thought, right, you know, have a little walk, you know, breath, take a deep breath, you know, big glug of water. And I thought, I'll walk to the edge of the cliff, that will do me good. Uh, it didn't, because when I looked over, the sea was full of dead bodies. And to this day, it will stay with me forever. And so I came back from the cliff edge and I collapsed and heart pounding, just thought I was going to vomit because you can imagine hot, humid Thailand full of decomposing bodies. Um, and literally all I could think about was how quickly could I get out of the country? It was too much. And you know how the best things happen at the most appropriate time and I was catapulted back to when I was 18 years old and I just started my nursing. And this is a long time ago. And this nursing matron appeared in front of me and she had such a stern face and her starched white apron and her starched hat. And she stared at me and she said, Nurse, it's not about you. You're here to serve. You're here to contribute. You're here to make a difference. Basically, get over yourself. Get up, get back in the car. And it was just what I needed because I was ready to run. And but once I was reminded of not putting the spotlight on me, but on the people that I was there to help, I got back in the car and I headed towards the worst hit area. Yeah. Now, during your time working in Thailand... You would have seen a lot of things, but there was one moment that I think I got the impression shifted the trajectory mm. of your life, and that mm. was a lady with a young baby. Mm. Yes, I mean, I, you know, a long career as a nurse, so I was helping in the first aid tent, and injuries horrific. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, you know, being hit by a washing machine coming at you at 40 miles an hour, you are badly injured. But apart from that, you could see that people were sort of the thing is, when you survive a big disaster, there is this high that you've lived, right? But then very quickly, you've lost everything. You know, your loved ones, your home, your livelihood. And this woman came up to me and literally, with outstretched hands, said to me, please, please, Linda, take my baby. I can no longer feed her and I don't want her to die. And I looked straight back into her eyes, knowing that this was right, although it sounded awful. And I said, no, I will not feed your baby. And I didn't take the baby. And I left her there standing with her arms outstretched with the baby in it. And I said, no, but I promise you, I will enable you to feed your own baby. Because all the alarm bells were going off. And I call the whole mantra that I've used a hand up, not a hand out. If you start to hand out for too long, People become dependent, they become beggars, they lose their self-esteem, their independence, their will, their hope, their dignity. And 
I knew that that was the only way to go, that she would actually be able to recover whatever life was left because she'd survived the tsunami. But I also remember that, that split second thinking, oops, how am I going to do this then? You know, I promised her this. And for a few years before that, I'd already started working with the private sector. And I thought, actually, what I need to do is tap into this amazing resource of brilliant entrepreneurial business brains that are desperate to help after the tsunami and really don't know how. So I got up to Bangkok as quickly as possible and asked the British ambassador to actually throw a party and just invite the national and international business leaders. And many came. And I literally said to them, I have a challenge for you. We have 5,000 Thai people who have lost everything. Loved ones, livelihood, homes. They're also very low educated. They were the bellboys, gardeners, cleaners of the hotel industry that we'd all been informed they were not rebuilding the hotels. So they had no chance regaining their jobs. And they couldn't relocate. They didn't have the money to pick up and go to where the next bit of work is. So I said this to them and I said, the challenge is, as that dear lady I told I would help, they need to earn money now. And I said, the challenge is for you to find a livelihood that is sustainable, that's not just going to be last for a week or five months, but a 10-year business. And, you know, the hands shot up, the smiles just appeared on their faces because they wanted to engage. And it was almost to them like a competition to find their excellence and their innovation. So I took four with me and they came for the weekend and they spoke to the people and looked in the environment and they went back to Bangkok. And the great thing with business leaders, they're never going to suggest something unless they really believe it's going to succeed. Because that's their mindset. They're never going to say, you know, make 10 cushion covers and I'll try and sell them. Huh. It's flipped completely the opposite. So it was just wonderful that just about a week later, they called me to go and meet them. They said, yeah, we really feel we've come up with a sustainable solution. And they'd done their research and they'd looked at the environment and lining the coast where the wave hit was still remaining acres of rubber trees. And of course, as they researched it, rubber is a viable business, as it is today. And they just said, this is viable for the next 10 years plus. So they'd done the costings. And for four families in a little community, all they needed was a coconut shell on the rubber tree, a knife to scour the tree, and a rubber mangle. And the cost for these four families to be uplifted generationally was 250 US dollars. And I was just bowled over because... What they'd proven, it was it's not about throwing money at anything. It's about taking the time to wear the moccasins of the people, go there potentially, meet them, look at the environment, look at the skill set, not just do a blanket approach. Because that critical analysis time had been implemented, the money spent was minimal. So, of course, I rushed down to the people because if the villagers don't own it or don't want it, it still won't succeed. But they said, absolutely, our grandparents harvested rubber, but we were completely, you know, taken by the hotel industry, had good tips, a bit glitzy. Yeah, we know how to harvest rubber. But then there was the punchline. So it started immediately as the business leaders had been, had promised me that they would find. But within four months, they were earning three times what they were earning in the hotel industry. Brilliant. It wasn't my idea. I was just a broker. 
All I was was to facilitate these incredible brains to come and use that for good. I didn't want their money. I just wanted them. Isn't that like a complete... Because you would have been hoping, or I would have been hoping in your shoes, that, all right, let's just give them enough. Just enough to get them by, just enough to feed their families. But no, there's enough, and then there's what they were on before, and then there's three times yeah. more than they were on yeah. before, yeah. which is true economic empowerment. Absolutely. And also, because for me, the benchmark of success is to make myself redundant. It's not necessary for anyone. People, we're, we all have this ability to, especially in developing countries, to become entrepreneurs because they around them are their families, their children. They will do anything to ensure they have the money for education, health and food. And just being given that slight hand up and the sharing of intelligence just set them off to be able to look after themselves. There was always mentorship given to them afterwards by the business people. So as they grew their business, they were there as a helping hand. It's not necessary. People have the ability, if you really understand who they are, where they are, and what the market will hold. So let's, I just want to go back a little bit further now, Mm. a little bit further, just to give more context to how you ended up on that plane in the first place. You started out as a nurse, Mm. and then due to becoming a single mother, you found yourself needing to go into the corporate world. I did. And then there was one fateful night in a car. And at this point, I'm going to hand it over, (laughs) hand it back to you. Oh, yeah. So I'd taken, I mean, I was a single mom and as all of us single moms, you know, um, but I was particularly silly. I was the one that I was absolutely determined to be super mom and not have any help from anyone. Don't do that. Um, But I, Oh, trust me. I know that one does not work. (laughs) But I was so determined and I really wanted my children to have everything that every other kid had. And so, you know, I did take a job for, for money. And I did everything I possibly could, the corporate car, and I had that, you know, lovely subsidized mortgage and big salary. And But I did notice that I was sort of drinking a bit more than I normally do, and I'd cry myself to sleep, and I was getting more and more miserable. And yes, I was in a sales conference in the north of England, and it finished very late one night, and I just thought, do I stay over or do I just get home? And I thought, I am off. So I jumped in my car, and um, I mean, I was in a very stressed state dark winter's night and as I was driving home on the motorway I had these terrible stabbing pains behind my eyes and the curtains came down and I went blind. I don't know how I got onto the hard shoulder. People say it would have been intuition, could have been angels, I've no idea. Way before the time of mobile phones I sat there, my life was over. I absolutely petrified, horrified, never see my children again, never see, never work again. And I kept thinking, what have I done? Why me? What's this about? And then, of course, you have such time to just think and be. And all I had in my toolbox was to pray. And I hadn't thought of God for a very, very long time, but I did at that moment. And I promised that if my sight came back, I would find what I was born to do and live it. And it was a pivotal, pivotal time in my life. And I was very, very lucky. My sight returned and the doctors called it stress blindness or hysterical blindness. And as I tell my story to others now, I hear many people have it. So beware out there. But I was lucky enough and I, my sight came back. And I remember going back to my home and explaining to my children that 
you know, that I had had this terrible experience. And, but they were still very dependent on me. There was about two or three years before my son went to the army and my daughter went to university. And I remember so clearly sitting them down on the sofa where they were totally happy about following their dreams and just happy as sandboys to get on with their lives. And I looked at them both as I held their hands and said, can I leave home now? <laughs> I, I've heard you tell this story before, obviously. And that moment, I can, just, I can feel you kind of expand at the thought of being able to just go. Like no loss of love for your children, no loss of love for your home, no, no yeah. regrets, but just suddenly having a blank page in front of you. Yeah, it, and I suppose I'd spent those two or three years really honing, working on myself as to what I felt was right for me, where I wanted to go. And I knew that my, my mission, my passion, my purpose was not to be in Safe Sanitise UK. And it was absolutely the right time, yeah. And the first time I met you, which was in fact yesterday, <laughs> you came with an old friend. Oh, yes. <laughs> you, you showed up with an old friend that looked very much like a suitcase. <laughs> and that suitcase you packed 18, is 18 years ago? Yes, yeah, correct. So sold everything that you had. Yes. Sold your house, sold every one of your possessions. Yes. Packed a suitcase and you have lived out of that suitcase. Yes. For 18 years now. Correct. Now, if you don't mind me asking, <laughs> how old were you 18 years ago? Well, I'm 59. So, yeah, 40. I'm just 59, yeah. 40. Yeah. 40, 41. Yeah, 40, 41. And the reason I think that's important, mm. other than just curiosity, is for some people, mm. there could be a story, a block, a challenge around being too old. Oh. It's too old, it's too yeah. late. My chance was years ago. I've lost it, I've missed it. No. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that your story highlights amazingly that that, that isn't ever the case. No. Never, ever mm -hmm. the case. Mm. So let's go, let's go to Prince Charles. Mm. He's always a good person to oh, go to. definitely. So with the royal wedding, literally tomorrow. Yes. I, I have bottles of champagne and friends ready to go. <laughs> so talk to me about Prince Charles. You met Prince Charles and that was another moment where it changed the trajectory of everything that you've created since. Totally. I mean, I... I was very, very lucky because I was working with Tibetan refugees in India back in 2001. And he was in India visiting, doing his, his work. He's a great humanitarian. And he asked to come and see my project. And I was, of course, delighted, nervous, but very delighted. And uh, he came to this refugee camp just outside of Delhi the Indian government were not happy because it was a rather unpleasant place. But he was determined to come. And it was so special because we had a lot of time to be able to talk. And I was sharing with him my absolute passion to engage the private sector as a resource in development work. And his response was, you are absolutely right, Linda, that they are the most underused resource. And then he said something that has stayed with me right up until this day. He said, you're so passionate about what you do. You inspire so easily. They'll hear your story and they'll get their checkbooks out and they'll write a big fat check for you. He said, as they're about to give it to you, just leave it on the table. Don't pick it up. 
which I said, why? Tell me. And he said, the money is for the moment. What you really want, the gem, the jewel in the crown is them. The person, the individual, their heart, their soul, their business skills, their entrepreneurial skills. Money is everywhere. They are not. It's them you want. And in fact, he said, if they're not prepared to give of themselves, leave the money exactly where it is. It's a double act. It's them and their money. And in fact, he said, the most important thing is them. So he was my mentor right at the beginning of my career. And we've worked together on many projects since. He's one of my heroes. You don't hear much about the great works of Prince Charles because these big people don't talk about themselves. But he is a true humanitarian with the depth of empathy that is rarely seen. Anyone that's tuned into this podcast more than once or has heard me speak anywhere, be it just in a small bar to a, to a large stage, would have heard me talk about contribution. Mm. And that if the most powerful force, most powerful word in influence is the word contribution, mm. you know, you, the only way to get noticed is to out-contribute anybody else. The only way to get followership online is to out-contribute everybody else. The only way to engage with anybody is to out-contribute. And I really believe that. But you, you took it one step further or you have taken it one step further and you've, I've heard you say the words, contribution is the greatest human need. Mm. Not that it will get you the greatest results, which it will, but in fact, it is our greatest human need, that mm. it feeds us more than anything else. Mm. It really does. And, and that's why I think we all seek, as much as we possibly can, to contribute to others. And I think what we have to realise that it's not always that easy or we think it's not. But actually, as we know, that even smiling at the bus driver or randomly paying for someone's coffee in Starbucks for the person standing behind you that goes to pay and they say, oh, no, no, the lady in front paid for you. These random acts of kindness, this the ability to raise people up, really costing us no money and no time, is very, very, very simple. We don't all have to do the massive things of, like me, selling everything and going onto the front line. So what I really would love to sort of share at this moment is that be aware of how you contribute as well. And if you possibly can, because I know that, you know, our lives are very busy and very stressful. And that often when we run to have a coffee at lunchtime and we hear a tin rattling, we grab a few coins and we pop them in. And we don't know where it's going or the effect it's going to have. And to be more aware of how we contribute and where the money is going is also really, really important. And that's why my big thing is it's very important to now start to use ourselves and our capabilities it's almost stop being charitable and to start being capable actually use our own capacities whether it's smiling whether it's but actually and using our skills our our core skills our passion our hobbies for good because actually that can be so targeted 
and so, so effective. And I think over the years now, many of, you know, our world is in a bit of a mess, to be honest. If we really take time to look around, is it a bit like Groundhog Day in a horror movie? It's the same images year on year of the African child, bloated stomach, flies on their faces. You know, we get frustrated. What is changing? And, you know, these big organisations that are set up to take care of these issues are weighed down with such heavy bureaucracy. They are so risk-averse. They have such tight budgets and remits. And I think we must question whether, you know, all these decades of throwing money at these big organisations, what has really changed? And you have said that the... That levels of charitable contributions are going up. Yeah. That they're higher than they have ever been. Totally. However, the impact and the change yeah. either is there and not incrementally growing or has not really made much of a difference, much of a noticeable difference as it should have done given the scale. Yeah. And you make another amazing point. You just mentioned charitable organizations. There's a lot of bureaucracy, there's a lot of red tape. And you've also said that the best and the brightest minds, they don't go there. And that, that really struck me as being so true. The best and the brightest minds, the youngest, the wisest, the people with the most skills, they don't go there. No. They go elsewhere. They go to corporates. They go to innovative organizations. They go to organizations that have a big mission, a big goal, lots of resources. And so if the ones who have the minds capable of solving some of these critical problems are in the private sector, then go there. And that's where you go. Absolutely. So how can, I'm a bit stuck in in terms of how can most of us make a difference now? You know, we've got the direct debit that goes out of our bank account once a month where we go, okay, at least I'm doing something. I feel like I'm doing something. You know, if I go into the office tomorrow and I want to change the way that I give, How can I do that? I've become a bit of an expert on this because I am so determined, passionate about harnessing the best and brightest brains. People in many different industries, I don't mind what the industry, everyone has a different perspective. So I have set up a few programs because I realise that many people are limited to their ability to move around the world. So they may be able to literally move from office to home most of their working year. So I've actually set up virtual games where people can sign up and join a virtual game to solve a problem. A real problem. A real problem. And that can be a problem within your own country, so like here we're in Australia, or it could be a global issue. And I, I put people in teams. You might have six teams all actually being given the same problem statement and a real problem. You get put into teams and you compete against each other over a fairly short period, 21 days. You might play the game two hours a week and you get questions and 24-hour challenges and you get insights and advisors. It's a game, so if you win certain things, you get points and points mean prizes. I make it fun, challenging, competitive, incredible network. It can be within a country. It can be totally global. Because I've designed it. You can sit at home in your armchair with a glass of wine and play this game. 
can actually help to solve a real problem, either in your own country, in your own backyard, or globally. You can encourage this game to be played within your company, within your organization. That's so interesting because a, a buzzword at the moment, and has been for a couple of years, is gamification. You know, <laughs> gamify online banking, gamify. The more you can create anything as a game, the more mm. people are likely to play, firstly. They're likely to become emotionally involved. They're likely to go back again because of the sense of competition, the sense of achievement. So for you to have taken gamification, <laughs> fancy word for creating a game, and to apply it to the social impact sector, I've, I've literally, I've never heard of I've never heard of that before. That'd have to be a world, a world first, I would imagine. Probably. I've never heard about it either. And I know it's my 20 years of blood, sweat and tears has brought me to this. And I keep thinking, why didn't I think about that before? Because what I realise is that, you know, in my life, of course, I, you know, I have a gun at my head. It's a heavy, serious life. But I have fun and we all need fun. You know, if someone talks to you too much about very hard, serious stuff, you start to switch off because actually we all have that, that white noise of stress in our lives. But if you introduce it in a fun game competitive challenge with great people around you and with the added bonus, contribution is the greatest human need. So you're feeling amazing because you're actually changing a family's life, a community's life. So I've had people say to me, I prefer to spend two hours a week playing your game than going down the pub. Well, it's a lot better than words with friends. <laughs> and I never win at that anyway. So, <laughs> so what's, we're going to put the website in the show notes, but what's the website just for anybody that's... It's lindacruz.com. lindacruz.com, it's there. Yep. And for anybody else who has more interest in the logical side of, of this particular case, the logic of the impact of charity versus contribution, the impact of aid versus economic development. There's an amazing book, actually, I don't know if you've read it, Dead Aid. Someone told me about it since I've been in Australia, but I haven't read it yet. Great book. Yeah. Um, Dambisi Moyo wrote this book. There's plenty, she does plenty of talks online as well. That's a, another mm. resource to have a look if you're, if you're into the stats of things. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move you away from this now and I want to go back to your story. Mm. So I want to talk to you about your time in Pakistan. Oh, yeah. You had said to me, and to a room full of people, that it's the most important learning that you've ever had. Yes. I went to Pakistan after the earthquake, and I spent the time previous to that in Thailand, commonly known as the Land of Smiles. So it was quite an interesting transition, because I remember as soon as I heard the, that the Pakistan earthquake had happened, I said to my friends in Thailand, OK, well, I'm off then. You know, literally, I had no idea where I was going, how I was going to do it. And I always travel alone during these... Do they just nod at this point when you say <laughs> yeah. it? It's like, and just imagine a room for people, uh-huh. uh, It is so true. It's literally, they slightly sort of... Yeah, there's the acceptance now that, of course, mad, but of course. Yeah, it was the, the most challenging. I learned more about myself in the two and a half years I was there than the whole of my life. I adored it. It was the most nerve-wracking. I mean, almost every day, because I was there during a particularly volatile period, was when the Marriott bomb blast happened, when many, many, many people died. The Red Moss siege, Benazir Bhutto got assassinated. And every single day, as foreigners there, we really were a target to be killed. It was, 
it was a very, very sensitive time. And you had said that insurance companies literally asked you to leave. Yes. It was like, we can't insure your life, so you should leave. And I'm like, that's not why I'm here. And because I'd already mobilized the private sector to help, and I'd already really got them on the edge to help. I thought, oh, brilliant. I leave now. And they're left not knowing how to broker these amazing partnerships with the community that I knew could uplift these communities for the rest of their lives. So, and I'm quite stubborn when I really want to do something. I don't get that impression. (laughs) So I didn't, again, didn't tell my family too much, but it was like, no, I, I, I really need to stay. And so you learn to live with no regrets to start with, because when, when death is your closest friend, when you know that at any moment it could be over, it was, uh, that was another lesson I learned hugely when I was in Pakistan. But it was also another amazing situation to really see how industry and the most poor, marginalised farmers could actually have this magical relationship. And that's where I actually coined the phrase corporate social opportunity. I've always hated the word CSR. Corporate social responsibility sounds like this huge big burden that companies have to sort of drag along behind them because they're expected to do this, that and the other. And I was approached by the milk industry who were very keen to access the rural farmers. And they very proudly told me that Pakistan is the sixth largest producer of milk in the world. I'm like, well, I never knew that. But all the farmers, especially in the northern provinces of Sindh, are completely scattered. They're like, they're all individual farmers and they struggle and they struggle. And the milk industry said, you know, if there's any way we can get them into cooperatives, we will start to educate them how to take care of their animals. And it means that they will be able to earn more money. And of course, then I'm like, oh, economic independence. And I jumped up and down like a Duracell bunny. And I went into the villages and looked at the farmers, talked to them. And as I say, always go alone. I had my burqa on mostly. And I remember these farmers thinking, what is this single woman doing in our village? You know, this foreign woman. And the shock factor always helps me. So uh, I I was able to go into the communities and these great big sort of community meetings would start. And it was brilliant because the farmers realised that if they started to work as cooperatives... And then the milk industry came in and said, look, you know, it's 50 degrees heat here in the summer. Give the cows some shade. Don't tether them. Let them drink water when they're thirsty. You know, give them slightly more nourishing food. We'll help you with the seed. You know, give the cow a shower an hour before you milk it. You get an extra litre of milk. And all this great education was coming at them from the private sector. And when I would speak to the villagers, it was like, the private sector, the, the milk industry, they'll come every single day with the tankers. They'll, they'll teach us how to measure the fat content to avoid this awful middleman. And they will pay us every single day for the milk. And that means we don't have to worry that the government haven't paid the teacher so they don't turn up, that the nurse doesn't come because they haven't been paid or we're too in a too remote area. We can hire our own teacher. We can put the shoes on our own feet. We can feed our family. Total independence through economy. And it just makes my heart sing because everyone in this equation was happy. The people I was really delighted for were the farmers. But there was no reason that the milk industry ever had to stop what they were doing. 
because it was a complete win-win situation. I was just about to say that. When you find a win-win, there's no reason it ever has to stop, unless obviously situations change, but the premise itself remains strong. Yeah. There's some interesting research that I read that was actually comparing Africa to China. Hmm. And they were saying that a number of years ago, Africa and China were in the same economic position. And Africa got aid, China got none. And China had to rely on economics, building strong infrastructure, getting investment into their economic infrastructure to get themselves out. And Africa remained relying on aid. And if we look at where we are now and China's superpower status and where Africa is now in terms of economic independence, you can see that disconnect just even there. And you have said that key things that change any community, any community, from very small through to entire nations, is economic independence. Oh, yeah. It's the only thing that will change anything. And I really can speak and say that with absolute authority. And, it, it, you know, when I always, every situation I go to, and I've literally, frontline projects, Africa, Asia, South America, Himalayas, deserts, jungles, war zones, and I always look at things holistically, right? So you have to. Healthcare, education, livelihood, et cetera, et cetera, infrastructure. But the absolute fundamental foundation has to be economic independence. It's from that point that everything can happen perfectly. And that's why looking to see how... And the blanket approach never works. And that's one thing I I see always, that when charities get given a load of money all in one go, and in their remits, in in their documents, they have to spend it very fast. And they blanket approach stuff. And that's been a lot of the problem in many of the countries like Africa where that blanket approach, again, doesn't work. And that's where so much money gets wasted. And when you hear some charities say they have a 20% success rate, what would happen to a business if you had 20% success rate? It's not good, is it? So the story I told my husband this morning, when he asked me who I was going to speak to today, was the Crocus's story. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I speak in stories. I can't, I can't help myself. And that was the one that I think for me summed up exactly what you were just saying in probably the most beautiful, poignant way. I've been very lucky to have, I've met Richard Branson a very long time ago in Soweto in Johannesburg. Again, along with Prince Charles, one of my incredible heroes for humanitarian work. Again, doesn't talk about it much, but a superb, superb gentleman. And, and I was doing some work for Virgin and up in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And I was there and we were looking at this very rural Berber, very conservative community. And although we were looking at it holistically, we were also very much looking at where were we going to get economic independence. And that was the search. And there was this beautiful moment, just walking through this gorgeous countryside, however challenged it was, it was very beautiful, and looking down onto the ground. And I said to one of the, the business people there, oh, that's a really beautiful spring crocus there, similar to what we'd see in England. Looking more closely, he said, that's not any ordinary crocus. That's a saffron crocus per ounce worth more than gold. You can imagine. Now, this is 
a thriving cooperative that Virgin have supported up in the Atlas Mountains, involving the whole community, the women, the children, the men, and they it's growing bit by bit by bit. What a thing to find in your backyard, a saffron crocus. And it wouldn't have been found. It would not, and definitely not by me. With, without bringing in <laughs> different minds. Totally right. People with experience, people who think economically. Quite, yeah. One of the things about contribution that, that I have always found is contribution cannot exist without listening. Oh, yeah. Because if you're not, again, even at a, at a business level, at a company level, or at a personal level, unless you're going to go out there and ask people what they need, or not even ask the question, just start listening. So the questions they're asking, the pain they're facing, the challenges they're trying to overcome, the opportunities they're looking for, then you're never going to be able to make a contribution that's going to make any kind of a difference, yep. have any kind of cut through. Yep. If those two things aren't true, then probably you couldn't even call it a contribution. Yep. So contribution always, always involves listening. Yep. And there was... Again, another, there are so many stories from your world. 20 years on, a front, on the front line is going to do that. Um, there was a story, again, that I think highlights the importance of asking the right questions and listening, and that was when you met the Dalai Lama. Oh, yeah. And went on to work with infant mortality. So can you tell us about that? Yes, it was... I mean, again, most of my life really just is quite surreal. And even someone last night at my presentation said, you know, your life is like a movie because the way you bump into people randomly, you know, it almost seems like it's just, just it blows your mind. But yes, I was working in India with Tibetan refugees, again with the private sector, and His Holiness had heard about the work I was doing. And he invited me to have an audience with him to share how the private sector were actually helping, which I was over the moon about. And while I was with him, he then wanted to ask me to do something. And I could see a little twinkle appear in his eye. And I just, I mean, what an incredible person he is. And he started to share that in the very, very remote parts of uh, the high Himalayas in Tibet, they have the highest infant mortality in the world. And this amazing charity had actually done lots of research. And they'd realized that there was one fundamental reason why babies were dying. And it was that they were using the same knife to cut the umbilical cord as to cut the yak meat. So inadvertently, they were just killing their own children. So this was the task, to travel to the most remote areas and share that one message. And... You said you didn't even check your calendar. I wanted to, but I felt I couldn't. I don't know if you could check your calendar when the Dalai Lama asked you to do something. Oh, I just had a great, a great big yes with a big beaming smile on my face. Very challenging journey to get there, you know, because they don't have bridges in Tibet. So to cross a river, you plunge into these freezing cold Himalayan fast flowing rivers, praying that you'll get out the other side on the back of your yak or mule or whatever it is. So it was quite a journey to get there. But what, of course, I approached this thinking, this is going to be easy. It's one message, you know, we have to get there, that could be tough. But actually on arrival to these very unique and completely altered reality worlds, how these Tibetan nomads live, who move around the plains, you know, farming and tending their animals, 
They literally have what they stand up in. And so there you see the men and the women and they had the things they required just hung around their belt. And there was this one knife that they used for everything, cutting the meat and the umbilical cord. And as I arrived there, I just realised how vastly different I was to them. And I said to myself, there's no point me telling them that they need to not use this dirty knife because they won't listen because looking at me, all they're going to think is, you know, she's this tall blonde woman from London and she's not going to understand our world at all. So what just came into my mind and, you know, who was the most trusted people here? Who will they, who will they listen to? Who, when they share the message, will it go deep into their heart and soul and they'll act on it? And in that particular environment, it's the monks. So the monks were amazing. And hearing the problem, they said, not a problem at all. We can help with this. Absolutely. So they called the community together, grandmas, aunties, uncles, mums and dads, into the monastery and said, when the woman gets pregnant, all come to the monastery. Bring a clean knife or a new knife or a sterile knife. And we will pray over it all day. And at the end of the day, we'll wrap it in our sacred scarf, our kata. And you pop it in your pocket until it's time to cut that umbilical cord. Success rate, 100%. It was the trusted leaders that they listened to. And I think we can apply that across our own lives in the first world country or anywhere in the world. Is who's delivering the message and how we're able to hear it. It was a very magical moment. We're not always the right person. To deliver a message. Correct. There could be somebody Absolutely. better, somebody more trusted, yes. somebody with more influence than us. Absolutely. So this concept of listening, of having to listen mm. if you're going to make a contribution. I've had some, I've been lucky enough to have some incredible people on this podcast and some of them from monks to Harvard professors to people who work with communities of um, Aboriginal communities who have been through incredible trauma. And the, it always amazes me because the warm place that they all get to, often at the same moment or at least at some point during the interview, is that there is a fundamental difference between hearing and listening. Mm. And hearing is when you just receive the words, usually with a subtext of what am I going to say, what am I going to do? <laughs> Correct. And listening is when you don't, you hear the words, absolutely, but you are also paying attention to the words that are not said. You're also paying attention to the silence between the words, the stories mm. between the words. Mm. And I haven't heard you tell this story, but I, I did read it as part of my research before meeting you today, my very quick research that I, had, <laughs> that I was able to do this morning. And there was a story about a man called Hamid. Mm. Yes, I was working in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco and... This particular area is a very long way from any medical facility. And so as a former nurse, I was asked to look at the state of healthcare in this area and met this beautiful nurse called Hamid. He'd had two years training and he'd, he decided that he would uproot himself from his quite nice town he lived in on the coast of Esuera to go and help the people in the Atmos Mountains. So he intentionally moved to help people way away from where he lived. 
difficult living, difficult area to exist in. And he had, his patch was about 20,000 patients. Really scattered, rural, rural patients. And he had developed the skills to really look after everyone, from the mums and the babies, if there were people having any problem. He was, the, he was their only help. So whatever he could do, he did. And I would meet him most days. I would go in and see how he was doing because it always takes a process to actually see the equipment they need and what resources they have available. And he was always happy and positive. So I started doing the assessments and I could see that, you know, he was in really like this makeshift cave come garage. It was freezing cold and you know, his little IV equipment was hung on the side of this old brick wall and, you know, but he was he was still managing everything. And every day I would talk to him and just see how he was getting on and what he could need. And he would always talk about his patients at length and what they needed. But there was something niggling me. And then I would sit with him and like some days he'd look really tired and his clothes were a little bit dirty. And, and I kept saying to him, where do you live, Hamid? Where do you, where do you live? And he would always talk about something else within a second. He'd just deflect it and talk about something else. And But day after day, what I realised was that there was something much deeper that he was not saying. And I remember one day, for the millionth time, he didn't tell me where he lived. And I said, I actually feel it's today. I'm going to come to your house to have a cup of tea nice cup of mint tea. And I said, actually, I'm not leaving till I've done it because I knew so deeply in my gut he was not telling me what I needed to hear. And all my questioning was never going to get to the answer. And so he took me, just walked me around the back of his, around the back of the clinic. And so reluctantly, he took me in to his home. And his home was literally, it was worse than a dog's kennel. And when I looked up at the roof, there wasn't a solid roof. And in these areas, it's freezing cold in the winter, it snows, and it's boiling hot in the summer. And he didn't even have a complete roof. There was nowhere to wash. There was one like metal hospital bed in one corner, no mattress. And I was horrified that this man who helps so many people was living in this state and how hadn't we noticed it how hadn't someone found out about what why of course he was such a humble modest service driven person he didn't have the ability to ask for himself and people that know me I was just so furiously incensed by this and I just said to him I was I promised that I would would not leave the country and I was due to leave in two weeks before his home was repaired. And I have many friends in Virgin who were living in the area, so I ran to them and told them, and they were also equally horrified. Very, very, very quickly, we mobilised everything. Beds, carpets, repair the roof, get plumbing water, get a toilet. I mean, literally, people just fell in and helped because what had happened to him was wrong. And so by the time I left, literally his home had had a makeover and I left with a real spring in my step that now this amazing unsung hero of the community was okay. So a year later I came back and uh, 
dashed to see my friend Hamid and knocked on the door and it opened and next to him stood this beautiful woman and he said, Linda, can I introduce you to my wife? What a moment. And he said, because you saw me, because you would not let go of my situation, because you listened so deeply, I was able to invite a lady to be my wife. Because without a home, I could not do that. The tears fell. The happiness, the joy of this beautiful human being who had been given this hand up and had his wife. And then the story continues. The next time I went back, their first baby had been born. More tears. And living and working on the front line has deeply taught me so many lessons, which is something essential for me when I move around the world to share with others because that ability to listen deeply, to hear the silence, to hear what's not being said, to not give up about exploring what is not being said, trusting that niggle, that gut, to keep digging and digging until you feel content and satisfied, can literally, like Hamid, change his life forever. How do we do more of that? I'm just thinking while you're talking, how do we do more of that at a community level? So not all of us, not many of us are going to go to the front line. Most of us are going to stay in our communities. How can we apply that thinking to our own worlds, to the people that we love, to the people that we walk past on the street, to the person that you sit next to in a coffee shop and you you know something's not quite right, but you think it's none of my business. You know, they probably don't want the intrusion. Is there one single thing, one single habit that we can develop and start getting practice and mastery at that if enough of us did it would transform our communities? Absolutely. It's a deep sense of care. And I think even that can sound overwhelming. So let's take it back to curiosity. Let's take it back to asking people their story. And even if it's someone like Hamid, who was very good at deflecting, be determined to, in the nicest way, allow that person, whether it's a stranger or a co-worker or a relative, consistently be interested in their life, in their situation. And another key thing is to be very observant. And that's what something's taught me on the front line, because there's always signs on that person, what they're wearing, what if they're tired, what they're carrying, what their shoes look like. There's signs that something is not quite right, especially if it's someone you've known for a period of time. So between that deep, deep sense of care, be curious, be committed to getting to really know them, see them from the inside out. Because we're all good at putting on a face, going to the hairdressers, putting on nice clothes. That's not who we are. And we're all very good at rushing. I am a pro at rushing. And the, the story that you tell yourself when you're rushing, which is if they needed me, they'd call. 
you know, I'm here, I'm here anytime. Need me, just call. And knowing in your heart of hearts that that is not enough. Yeah. That when someone is in that space, someone you love is in that space, they don't call, they don't reach out very no. rarely. Correct. And, you know, even when I look back to my nursing days and I was doing, you know, I'd go to a major casualty. Who are the ones you have to go to first? The ones that are not talking. The ones that are talking actually are okay. They might be badly injured, but they're okay. It's the silent ones. So always think about that. It's the people that are not actually talking and part of the conversation. They are the ones that actually need your attention, your observation and your care. There's a beautiful lady we had on the podcast called Judy, Dr. Judy Atkinson. And she worked with, I think I mentioned before, Aboriginal communities. Mm. And she has this amazing line that I know you're going to love. She said, um, unless the stories behind the trauma are heard, no healing can ever occur. Mm. You can't heal unless you get the story out of your body. Correct. And that opens up doorways and opportunities to a hundred other things. But unless a story comes out of your body, there's opportunity for very little. Totally right. Totally, totally right. So I'm going to fast forward you again. I feel like I've been moving you backwards (laughs) and forwards on a timeline today. I'm going to fast forward you again. I'm going to fast forward you, say, 10 years from now. And your wildest dreams have come true. And the private sector is working alongside the rest of the globe in the areas of most need in a way that is the most effective and efficient possible in solving some of the world's greatest challenges. What does that look like? Oh, wonderful. I can see it. Because every area of our world, because you think of all the sectors, you know, money's the engine of the world, the private sector is how the world operates. So whether it's healthcare, whether it's farming, there's education. We have so properly looked at the problems and invested the right money. Not one person needs to go hungry. Not one person needs to go uneducated. Every single person on our globe will have the possibility of economic independence. And that takes the best and brightest minds. To engage in the world's most critical social and environmental problems. So leaders, if you're out there, please stand up. The offering of your teams. We need (laughs) you. Okay, one last, one last question. If I could give you, and it may have just been that, if I can give you a stage and I could give you a microphone and in front of you, I could put every single person that you would ever want to influence on this topic. And I gave you five minutes. What's the one thing that you would want them to know? Find what you were born to do, however you feel you can. Don't, how they say, a short bad relationship is better than a long bad relationship. Don't waste time. Keep checking in. Is your day-to-day life a good one? Are you actually feeling your happiness, your heart, your passion? Are you feeling alive? Are you feeling connected? Find your passion, your purpose, and ensure that alongside that, you play and have fun. We aren't born to suffer. We're born to live our passion and our purpose, to contribute, to be connected. So stop and look at yourself as often as possible. I still do it every couple of days. Am I on track? Am I doing what I was meant to be doing? People say to me, When's your next holiday? I don't need a holiday. I don't need to take a day off. I adore what I do. 
I get every day with a spring in my step. Keep analyzing that you're living your passion, your purpose, and you're having fun. And there's a line from a video, I'm going to add to that. There's a line from a video that you played yesterday, which was, I'm paraphrasing a very small part of it. There is no time limit. Start whenever you want. There's no rules to this thing, this thing called life. Well, Linda Cruz, thank you. I am hoping that everyone's going to jump out and play your game. <laughs> please. Any, the next time you can t- consider solitaire or words with friends, <laughs> please change your mind. <laughs> and hopefully we will get to witness you in this part of the world and many other parts of the world a hundred times over over the next few years. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.